Remove a nasal swab from the pouch. Insert the swab into one of the nostrils up to two to three centimeters from the edge of the nostril. Slowly roll the swab five times over the surface of the nostril. Ugh. Okay. Using the same swab, repeat this collection process in the other nostril. Last week, my girlfriend Shimena was feeling a wee bit ill. Bit of a headache, bit of a sniffy nose, you know the drill. Ordinarily, that would have meant a drive to the GP who would have come out, full PPE, cheerful demeanour, thrust a swab up her nose and told us we'd get a text if the news was good and a call if the news was bad. But 24 hours earlier, this had happened. Following on from 3,297 cases yesterday and 2,846 cases on Tuesday, means that we are now confirming uh, our shift to phase three of our planned Omicron response. That'll happen as of 11.59pm tonight. So, instead, she popped down to a community testing centre and she returned 20 minutes later carrying two small plastic packages. Oh, that's the cat. Okay, so you're supposed to go like that. Uh-huh. Swish it around. Yep, swish it around vigorously. I don't know whether that's quite vigorous enough. <laughs> okay, that's... Oh, yeah, that's vigorous. That was vigorous Yeah, that enough. was vigorous. Okay, and then we put this guy on this. Close the vial with provider cat and push firmly into the vial. Mix thoroughly by flicking the bottom of the tube. Here we, we go. go. That's what we're doing. Oh. You've got your radio voice on. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, squeeze vial gently. Allow the required drops according to the kit instructions to fall into the south well. I feel like we should walk away. Okay. And yeah, we can walk away and come back. The countdown begins. Aotearoa has entered phase three. And it's a big change. In a nutshell, it means much less formality, much more in the way of personal responsibility. And it signals a seismic shift in how we test for the virus. The age of PCR testing being standard is over. The age of the rapid antigen test has begun. Auckland testing sites are now using rapid antigen tests as their go-to method. While School leaders are delighted the government will be supplying masks and rapid antigen tests. Now the country is in phase three of the Omicron outbreak. There are nearly well, the real issue is that we just don't have enough in the country right now. We could have had rapid antigen tests available in pharmacies and supermarkets for all of this year if the government had got its A and G in the uh, back uh, quarter of last year. So... I'm Emil Donovan, by the way, and this is The Detail. And today on the programme, we're talking rats. How do they work? What does a positive test mean for you? Why has this happened? And are there enough to go around? Dr. Juliet Alvey, clinical microbiologist at Southern Community Laboratories and deputy chair of the New Zealand Microbiology Network. So obviously when we're chasing an elimination strategy, we don't want to really miss a single case because that has wide implications. So the sensitivity of the individual test becomes an extremely important parameter 
Uh, and certainly within the laboratories, you know, we were very keen to be using the most sensitive technology that's available. And by sensitive, I mean giving the, the highest chance of picking up a case if it's there. And so if you kind of consider if you had like, you know, 100 tests performed and you had a test that had sensitivity equivalent to PCR, you'd probably maybe only potentially miss one. Mm. Whereas you, you switch over to rapid antigen tests and, you know, with the, the sensitivity perhaps around the 80% mark, you might miss 20 out of 100. But that becomes less important once you've got widespread spread, you know, throughout the community. The aim of the public health response really shifts towards, you know, management and making sure that the, the key priority groups or the most vulnerable are kept safe rather than trying to stop everyone catching the infection. So, you know, the strategy, once the strategy changes, then you move away from needing that most perfect sensitive test to using the one that's most practical and, you know, applicable. And also when you consider that, you know, once we've got a lot of cases happening out there, we simply don't have enough tests to go around. So, you know, if you get a PCR test, but the labs can't get to it for five or six days, then the test result becomes much less relevant than if you could get your hands on an immediate rapid antigen test and get a result there and then. So the time to result becomes a lot more important when, uh, particularly when that gold standard, the PCR is turnaround time is really pushed out, it becomes much, much less useful. Omicron has changed the COVID game in a bunch of ways, and one of the most dramatic of those is the speed of PCR testing. If you've had to get a PCR test since late January, you might have noticed this. It's taken ages to get back, five or six days in some cases, much slower than it's been before. And this is because there's more COVID, of course, so more people are getting tested. The laboratory's PCR tests are sent to have been processing like 30,000 every day for the past couple of weeks. But there's another factor too. When community transmission was vanishingly rare, we could use a testing technique called pooling. Our producer, Sarah Robson, asked newsroom's Sam Suchdaver to explain. What we have been able to do in the past and the laboratories have been able to do is put a bunch of COVID swabs together and then run it just in one big batch. And then if there's a positive result in that, they have to go out and uh, independently retest each one to figure out, you know, who it is that's actually tested positive for COVID. That only works, though, if you've got a sufficiently low positivity rate. Otherwise, if you're basically getting every batch coming back positive, then you're just having to do things twice. So it worked pretty well in the past. We kept the positivity rate down quite low, but now it's sort of it's just not viable for them to keep doing that. So it, it slows down the process. Really, you've got to do each each test one by one rather than sort of checking them in clumps. So ironically, as our case numbers go up, our capacity for tests goes down, and so that's what we've been experiencing is is a rise in demand whilst a reduction in capacity due to the removal of the ability to pull. And that means that in terms of the number of tests we can do, the switch to rapid antigen testing is... Oh, immense. So it basically takes almost all of the pressure off the lab. So the government has said now, we what, what they have done previously is they had these um, rapid antigen tests, rats, they said, you know, look, if you get a positive, we will confirm that with a, uh, a PCR test and they've got rid of that requirement now. So you'll have, you know, tens of thousands of tests that had to go to laboratories to be done. 
and would you know take a few days and tie up their resources and now that's being replaced just with these these rapid tests that um actually i had to do one today funnily enough and you know you sort of jam the swab up your nose swirl it around drop drop some solution on the the little test thing and you um you get it back in you know 15 minutes or so so you don't actually need any sort of health expertise or or lab knowledge to do it so it sort of cuts them out of the equation so it's a major shift it's a, a shift towards testing ourselves rather than having to rely on a healthcare worker performing a swab and sending that swab to a laboratory for a pcr it's a change in terms of that turnaround time to test but it's also a slight relaxation, I think, of the approach to COVID. You know, we've had a zero tolerance up to now. You know, we we're chasing the elimination strategy, a real zero tolerance for having any cases in the community. And so we have to shift towards that pragmatic manage it phase where we can all take on some more responsibility for our own health and our own behaviours in terms of not being in large groups, for example, if we're symptomatic, um, but to proceed take that rapid antigen test and and act accordingly and a major shift away from needing to confirm rapid antigen tests with a with a pcr because we now know that the rapid antigen test will be performing much much more accurately whilst we've got high case numbers so we won't need to be performing any confirmatory pcr and that is a, a fairly major shift away from what we've been doing you know, PCRs for all cases. So we will be focusing our PCR work on other groups that will still need access to PCR. So that might be hospitals where we need to keep, you know, vulnerable patients in hospitals safe from new cases coming in, as residential care facilities, maybe immunosuppressed people that needs, you know, a, a diagnosis to access treatments, for example, or it might be for people that are unable to do their own rapid antigen tests or can't access rapid antigen tests easily at home. So those more vulnerable, harder to reach groups, whereas the vast majority of everybody else would hopefully shift over to a rapid antigen and, and, um, and use that to tell us whether they've got a high uh, likelihood of having COVID-19 or not. And just to discuss the correlation really, or, or the link between having a, a positive rapid antigen test and infectiousness. There's data out there which really tries to correlate positive antigens with a certain viral load threshold or a certain infectiousness, which seems to bear out. So if you're positive on the rapid antigen test, then you're really very infectious. And so maybe missing a few cases with a lower viral load or, or a lower infectiousness, hopefully in the grand scheme of things and the overall public health response won't matter so terribly that's the kind of major shifts that we need to have in our mindset as we move forward. All of which begs the question, why haven't we been using rapid antigen testing in concert with PCR testing all along? So the rapid antigen test with its lower sensitivity doesn't perform well or as well when you've got a low amount of cases in the community. Even if we took a test, say, for example, that was a sensitive 80% sensitivity, which is kind of the benchmark for a test that would be approved by the World Health Organization, for example, when you've got a very low prevalence of infections, so less than 1%, if you've got a positive test result, the chance of it being a true positive is really only in the region of about 20%. So so say out of 10 positive tests, when you have a prevalence of less than 1% in the community, 
eight of those tests will be incorrect false positives compared with two that might be true positives. So you can immediately see the problem there. But once you increase that prevalence of infections in the community, it performs much, much better. So, for example, in some parts of New Zealand at the moment, particularly down here in Dunedin, where I'm speaking from, we're seeing a positivity rate of around about 30%. And so once you've got that level of infection happening out there, then that positive predictive value or the chance of a positive test actually being a true positive rises to above 90%. So now when we do 10 positive tests, and at least nine of them are going to be a true positive. So you can see that prevalence in the community has a direct impact on how useful that test will be. And it's really just a statistics game. Mm. And that prior probability of infection is really the, the most important factor there. So it's really no point using the rapid antigen test when we didn't have any cases. It would have caused more hassle for people that would be getting positive results that were that were likely to be, you know, false positives. Now, it's important to point out here that fears around false positives haven't really borne out. We've seen fewer of those than we might expect. But, of course, this is a fast-moving thing. Health officials make decisions based on the information they have to hand. Some of it works out, some of it doesn't. That's how it works. But there's also the point National's COVID spokesperson Chris Bishop has brought up. We could have had rapid antigen tests available on pharmacies and supermarkets for all of this year if the government had got its A into G in the uh, back uh, quarter of last year, and they didn't. There have been issues with getting supplies into the country, I think. You know, there simply weren't weren't enough tests on order, but then that begs the question, did, did we order enough tests early enough in, in the sort of pandemic? I get a sense sometimes when you look at the government's responses that because we did so well initially, back in in, uh, the glory days of 2020 in terms of stamping out COVID then, that a lot of the responses kind of ended up being stuck stuck in that mindset. That's the sort of very old school, this is how we deal with it. And maybe we just haven't moved fast enough. Our politicians, maybe our health officials to that, you know, mindset that this is quite, quite different, that we can't just sort of keep it out, stamp it out, lock down, and, and that we needed to sort of have a, a more rapid and, and um, fluid approach to, to dealing with cases. In some countries around the world, I'm thinking of the, the United Kingdom here, you can get pretty much as many rapid antigen tests as you like. They'll be delivered to your door, they're free. It's been like this for months. Why isn't that happening here? I, mean, I think it's really easy with hindsight to look back. But certainly at the time when rapid antigens were first discussed, they weren't really something that we were were needing at the time because we were still in that elimination phase. And then, of course, Omicron came along and it changed the landscape and everything needed to move very quickly. Because there's such high global demand and we're a relatively small piece of that global market, you know, it's much more difficult, I think, to be able to get the share of the tests out there that we needed But look, I'm not going to particularly comment on that process because it's not something that obviously I've been involved with. But I do think that we are now accessing them when we need them. Whether or not we will get enough, I don't know. I think that actually the UK has changed. Um, So rapid antigen tests will no longer be freely available. And from the 1st of April, when winter is over and the virus will spread less easily, we will end free symptomatic and asymptomatic testing for the general public. We will continue to provide free symptomatic tests 
to the oldest age groups and those most vulnerable to COVID. And in line with the practice in many other countries, we're working with retailers to ensure that everyone who wants to can buy a test. In some senses, that's great because it might free up. You know, we might be entering the phase of needing rapid antigen tests when other countries are actually scaling back. So there may be access to extra tests as other countries start to wind down. So if your rapid antigen test tests positive, you don't need to get that confirmed by a PCR test. That is considered a positive diagnosis now. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you will no longer need to confirm it with a PCR because we accept the performance of the rapid antigen test. I mean, there may be some situations if a clinician decides that actually, you know, they're not they're not convinced by the result or there's some clinical reason why a PCR test may still be required, then that will be available. But for the vast majority of people, you know, the rapid antigen test result is the final. And what um, will the process be for close contacts? Close contacts themselves no longer need to isolate as a requirement by law, but household contacts will. So I guess if you're, if you're falling into a close contact group, then you can still perform your own assessment of what you think the risk might be and act accordingly. But there's no legal requirement for you to, to self-isolate. So that's the major change here. And so that will really free up an awful lot of people, particularly in sort of schools and the like, where, you know, classrooms were all deemed to be close contacts and needing to self-isolate. That will all change. Um, And those close contacts, unless symptoms develop, won't need to be routinely tested. So that, that seems like a crucial point. So say you've been going into the office and then you were to take a rapid antigen test and it was positive, you're workmates would make the call themselves as to whether they would need to isolate. However, your husband or wife or your kids, presuming that you live live with them, they would need to isolate. That's right, because we know that the household is really the highest risk situation in terms of secondary cases. So if you're in a household with a positive person with Omicron, you've probably got a 30% chance of catching it within that household setting And that's the highest risk scenario. And then the risk does decline for other close contact scenarios. But I think there's still room for us acting according to what we think the risk might be. So even if you don't live with a person, if you feel actually you've had, you know, prolonged close contacts in a situation that puts you at exposure to viral particles coming from that person's upper airway, then you might decide, actually, I think I'm at risk here I'm going to stay away from others and be really careful, particularly if you were, say, wanting to go and visit an elderly relative in a rest home or had elderly parents or, you know, some other situation that you thought posed a risk. But the requirement from a public health perspective is you don't need to be self-isolating by law. Yeah. So that's a major shift. Um, All right. So... If we sort of take a step back, I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit freaky. I don't know, when you step back and it's like, oh, my God. New community cases announced today were almost double yesterday's figure at just over a whopping 12,000. There were only like 900 a week ago. What's happening? This is scary. But when we take stock and look at the whole situation, are things looking okay from your point of view, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I it's been a stressful week, to say the least, in the labs with, you know, the, the numbers of tests coming in and how we're going to get through them all. But I do think um, we need to stay calm and focused on 
you know, the next few weeks. I feel calm about it. I think we just need to accept that, you know, COVID is here. Like every other country around the world, we have to deal with COVID over the next few weeks and it's going to be tough. But as long as we do the right things, as long as we stay kind and check in on our neighbours and make sure that people have access to things that they might need if they're having to isolate with COVID, then I think we will be fine. We will see, we'll continue to see a big increase in cases uh, and then the, the, the increase will peak and then it will start to come down again. And that's what we will expect to happen. I'm not sure what the time frame around that will be. Models can help, but are often don't play out. Mm. So we just need to brace ourselves for a tough few weeks. But I think we're in a, a good position. We've got a well-vaccinated population. I think as long as we can maintain our hospitals to keep running healthcare services, then that will put us in a really good position. We need to accept that COVID is here. We need to stay calm and do what's what's required. Okay, we've been away. We made a cup of tea. We're going to check the test now. Uh, Mark's out of tea. <laughs> um... I'm not rushing to do another one. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Um, so it looks like it's negative. So it's got a little line by the C. One line next to the C indicates the virus is not detected. If you do not have symptoms, you can go to work. Yay! Yay! You can go to work! <laughs> so I just have a source. A scratchy throat from something else then. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to a mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Dr. Juliet Alvey, Sam Suchdaver, and Shemina Smith. Matewa.